Tell Your Story, an oral history series for the Community of Northridge Presbyterian Church podcast. I am Savannah Shivers, the pastoral resident here, and I will be your podcast host. This podcast focuses on nine oral histories or life stories of the members of Northridge that centers on one topic, speaking on faith journeys, specifically how faith journeys relate to God's work and members' past and present major life experiences. Everyone's faith journey is different because we are all unique. Some people have steady faith journeys where they always feel close to God, and some people have peaks and valleys in their faith journeys where they sometimes feel close to God and sometimes they do not. There is no right or wrong faith journey. There are just faith journeys. So, over the course of this podcast, we will hear nine different faith stories from nine different individuals. These individuals represent the rich diversity of Northridge members in terms of age, experience, and different identities. I believe that sharing one's faith story serves as a way to connect and get to know each other better and more deeply. It is also a way to help build community by getting to know people and their life stories. After all, the church is a community of unique and diverse people that comes together in fellowship to worship God. We are the church together, so let us learn about each other's life stories. Let's get started. For this episode of the podcast, I am here with Bill Swart. So Bill, I was wondering if you could tell me about a pivotal moment in your faith journey. Sure. So I have always been interested in and really drawn to the possibility of religious experience. You know, that, that's a concept that maybe we don't talk about as much or in the same way in the Presbyterian tradition as, as others. But it's always been of interest to me. What is that to me? I mean, it's kind of a concept that we are aware of the divine. For each of us, it could be range from the you know, sublime to the mundane. Some people you know, experience God in beautiful images, nature. Um, I felt like I experienced God watching the birth of my first son. For many people, as we know, it's more powerful. The prophets claimed Revelation is religious experience, and there's some people today, you know, that, that feel the same way about it. And so, I mean, I, I'll share that, that maybe part of what prompted this is I had something of a mystical experience of sorts in my early teens. It was a mystical experience without a user guide. I uh, didn't know what to do with it. I mean, it's still a very vivid memory for me. I mean, even today but it did not send my life in any different direction. You know, it, it didn't reveal any particular truth to me, any meaning about life. 
And yet I still remember it vividly. And so I think, in part, my interest in, in that idea continues to be important to me. Yeah, I think it's been important because I couldn't let go of that, of the memory. And, and while there are ways in which my faith has changed, my attitude, my you know, life experience have changed me, that's always been kind of lurking in the background of something that was true for me. And so as I might consider some areas that I was taught, you know, in my early youth, I might depart from those. You know, throughout, I could say, nevertheless, I remember that. And, and that was something that was not my imagination. I was raised in the Baptist tradition. Like a lot of people, I was all in, you know, as a young Baptist. And I would say over the years, you know, over the decades, it evolved from being, you know, kind of a childlike faith to maybe a more learned childlike faith to a point in life where I was confident of what I believed. And I'm going to say with a kind of a willful disregard for complications in what I believed. I had other things on my mind. You know, I was more interested in career, family, fitting in, community, and less interested in questioning, you know, matters of faith, particularly those that people around me also seem to share. As a teenager, you know, I was really not one of those people who is caught up in emotion, you know, was not the person who in a revival service, jumped up and wanted to march down to the front and, and take action. I didn't. Uh, and it wasn't that I was embarrassed necessarily. It just, that emotion didn't captivate me, didn't motivate me to do anything. But I was in a, a youth camp in my early teens, 13, when my friends were sort of dropping like flies. Everybody was going down to the front, rededicate their life, decide to become a preacher determined that they weren't really saved, and this time for sure they were going to be saved. And that just wasn't me. And so, I, as I remember on a Wednesday night, after the worship service was over, I went to get a snow cone and, and walked down the path, you know, to the snow cone shack at uh, it was Falls Creek, Oklahoma. You know, I remember the, I mean, the street lights were on, but there really weren't people. Everybody else was kind of huddled in prayer groups and things like that. And when I got to the snow cone shack, it was closed, not surprisingly. So I sat down in the grass and just sort of waited. And, and at that moment, you know, I just voiced, you know, the, the simple prayer that had been telling us all week, God's plan for us. And again, I, I don't recommend this for others, but this is, you know, an honest recount. And so, you know, what they said is, you know, ask Jesus to come into your heart. And, and that's what you do. And that's what I did, you know, just sitting there again. And, and, and it was like, it, it's, it's a vivid, vivid memory of an incredible euphoria of like the whole world sparkling and pulsing momentarily. And I knew I'd like been hit by a train. 
And I guess for, you know, five or 10 minutes, I couldn't talk about it. It wasn't like I struck dumb, you know, like some other people in the Bible. But that was it. And, and I thought, hey, this is going to be the first of many of these. You know, this is like a drug. But it isn't, and it wasn't. And, and that experience has never been repeated for me. But yet, you know, people say there are times of your life that are just sort of imprinted on your memory. You know, important moments. And for each of us, it's different. But for me, that's sort of imprinted on my memory. And I can, you know, still remember the, you know, the, the lights, the, the sounds, the smells, you know, where I was, what I thought. So, and, and then, you know, like I said, it's, it's not been repeated in any way in my life. So, what were some of the lights and smells? And Well, it was, it was rural Oklahoma. And again, it's almost like if I was a talented painter, I mean, I could paint the scene. You know, it was sitting on sloped grass, you know, some rocks, some weeds, you know, the smell of, of kind of damp grass, you know, nighttime bug sounds, the light above the shack, the snow cone shack had, I don't know if they're locusts or what, but I mean, there's just that kind of noise. You know, the faint, faint sound of, young people kind of laughing in the distance. But I mean, nobody was around me. I was, I was really just out there sitting alone there. I think we all in our lives sometimes look back at something and say, boy, you know, I misunderstood what that was all about. Whether it's an experience of love or an experience of, of romance or, or, or crowds saying you're the best or crowds saying you're the worst. And in retrospect, you look back and say, well, you know, I was just immature, or, or that was emotion, or that, that was lies told me, or my parents taught me wrong, or my friends led me down the wrong path. And this just hasn't had any of that characteristic. So it's not as though I'm obsessed by it, but throughout the years, I've never looked back and said that was mass hypnosis, or, you know, or that was just an impressionable, emotional teenager who was following, you know, the guidelines of all his friends, because it wasn't that. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. It was, it was a glimpse, but it was not like a roadmap of anything. You know, so I, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but, you know, I could almost call it like a, a glimpse of the divine, but, but no words spoken to me, you know, no future path laid out for me. You know, the glimpse I had didn't say, you know, become a, philosophy professor didn't say, you know, do anything. It just, it was, that was that, you know, so it was really more wrestling with the idea of so what. And so, I mean, I think like many people, you know, as, as, as you go through life, you know, moments and times are sort of put on the shelf. And this was, I mean, it's not something like I thought of every Sunday at all. But I did try, I joined a Presbyterian church in Dallas with my wife, and we raised our first couple of kids in that church, you know, tried to kind of be all in in that experience. And I think like a lot of real human beings, you know, we, I had, you know, moments of disappointment, moments of suffering, nothing that would impress anybody. I've heard a lot worse. But for me, you know, sometimes I felt like I was hanging on by my fingernails in my 30s and 40s. And it gave me the chance, you know, to, to really seek something from prayer and meditation. And so I guess that to me is the connection that if, if, if I felt as though I had had a real glimpse of God, 
then I should theoretically have the opportunity to have a real connection, you know, through prayer and meditation. And, and I would say I was largely disappointed in my 30s. You know, maybe what I was seeking was relief from suffering, being saved from a situation either of my making or not of my making, protected and saved from stuff. And that didn't happen. I mean, that didn't happen at all. And I wouldn't say there was a crisis of faith, but it sort of flipped on its head the things that I anticipated. Because I don't want to say I was the, the lucky one, but faith was easy into my 30s. I married the woman I loved. I got a job that was exciting to me. I was successful. I had a house I loved, healthy kids. And yet through periods of suffering, you know, my life seemed to be, you know, flipped on its head. So I began to just not know what prayer was. People talk about, writers talk about, sort of the metaphor of sort of words stopping, you know, six inches above your head. That's how I felt. Or... Or not that it was a lie, but that there's a, a philosopher who says God is so distant as to almost be non-existent. I think those are cool words. I don't believe that anymore, but there were times I felt that. Although God was there, God was so distant as almost to be non-existent to me. And so that was, that was kind of a, a low point, I would say. And yet throughout that, I mean, I never forgot, although it didn't give me comfort you know, to know of my experience when I was in my teens. And so really, unrelated to that, I began taking courses at University of Texas at Dallas. I say it was unrelated, but I think my initial desire was creative writing, you know, novel writing, playwriting, short story writing. And I do think that when you're a writer or aspiring to be a writer, often that will give you an outlet to say things in your writing that you wouldn't say out loud or to reflect in a way more deeply, you know, maybe with more emotion than you would if you're having a conversation. And, and it sort of did that for me. And so, I mean, particularly in the early things I tried to write, I mean, there, there were those themes in there, the religious themes of images of Virgin Mary, but nobody knew what it meant. This, I mean, it was that kind of absurdity, which I know, you know, was, was something I was sort of feeling myself. I was there a long time. I got my degree after 20 years. They didn't even count the first 10 years of courses. I mean, because I just, I loved going out there. I would have to say that, that my favorite courses and some that were in many ways life-changing to me were the creative writing courses because a couple of professors there were so good about helping you voice what you wanted to say. You know, part of it was just the, the craft of writing. How do you express emotion? How do you do dialogue that is not didactic, that is authentic? How do you create conflict? How do you not, how do you force yourself not to run away from those moments of conflict? You know, the writing professor is my age. So we became friends as well. But, but I would say those, many of my best memories are in those classes. And also the opportunity to have your writing read to someone else. Again, that, that's sort of a safe way to have someone hear things of importance, but you have that ability to say, but that's just creative writing. That, that's just fiction. Even though you know in your heart, 
there is some truth in there as far as things you're experiencing. And I enjoyed that thoroughly. But, I mean, over time, I, I kept writing, but I no longer wanted to take creative writing courses, and I became much more interested in philosophy. Well, one favorite philosophy professor there as well, who, who didn't really share my beliefs on religion, but he respected them. His interest was in contemporary philosophy and how you find truth if there is no God. You know, what is truth? You know, what is our morality? So anyway, he and I, I wouldn't say we had astonishing conversations, but we got each other. And so I began enjoying his courses. And ultimately, I think, as you know, finished my dissertation in a philosophy of religion subject. What were some of the themes in your writing? The one that came up again and again is something we've, we've sort of talked about a bit, and that is what is an authentic religious experience? And how do you live in a world where the people around you may respect in varying degrees what you've experienced, but can't really talk about it because it's, it's a bit foreign to them. And so even though there may be respect, it is very hard, you know, to find a community of people to talk openly with. We are remarkably fortunate in this church and may not know it. To what extent there are groups within the church that you can find that you can talk openly about things like that. And I will say a series of characters that kept reappearing in my books. And even though the story might be totally unrelated, it wasn't like there were sequels or prequels. But once I'd create a character, you know, I had one character who in my head was my oldest son. Another character, you know, who in my head was father or, or or a client or a friend. And so often I would work out conflicts or fears relating to my children in the book, often by exaggeration. So they would be horrified to know, you know, that a story I might write in which there was a, you know, a 19 year old character was an exaggerated version of one of my children who I had horrible fears about, anxiety about. So that was one way I think in which the writing was kind of an outlet. So we have a Sunday school class. I mean, it's met, you know, with the same series months ago that deals with addressing head on difficult questions of our faith. And I think when I, I was actually teaching it the first time around, and I expected when we were addressing questions that were almost potentially heretical, that, you know, there would be shock anger, disappointment, and there was none of that. There were certainly people in the room, I think, who by their silence made it clear they didn't necessarily agree with where the conversation was going. But there was no feeling that you couldn't share openly. The Bible may have said X, that's not important to me, and I do not believe it can be literally true. I recognize that people of their faiths find that it must be literally true, and that doesn't make me respect them less, or maybe it does, Either way, it is what it is for me. And, and yet I still have my faith. This is what people would say. You know, I continue to have faith that we are on the right track. 
progressive Christian communities. I, I enjoy that a lot and find, uh, again, there's almost something magical about a community and the effect that a community of people who, who care about you and share openly with you can enhance your experience. And maybe that's, again, kind of a glimpse of the divine, kind of a religious experience. So one of the reasons I think that I was drawn to the philosophy of religion topic was really just to be able to take a step back and look at what smart people for the last few hundreds of years have been saying. And I say I, I did it from kind of an agnostic standpoint, and I don't mean that literally because I was not literally agnostic, but I, I didn't come into it like with a preconceived idea. I was not looking for philosophers who supported a certain hypothesis I had. I really just, I wanted to know what people thought. I mean, the, the general trend of philosophers from the late 1800s through really almost the end of this last century were that, you know, there is no God. The scientific method has demonstrated there is no God, which is an exaggeration. But I mean, it's, it's kind of like scientists and philosophers were basically saying, let's just be done with that. And let's move on to the harder questions of how do we find truth? How do we find morality? If everything we have been told in the past is wrong about a divine plan for creation. And so you have famous philosophers like Nietzsche and Heidegger. They were very eloquent in disposing of all that and saying, you know, what's next? And I think interestingly, in the World War I period in particular, it crashed the hopes of many idealists. There were many people who said, we are now in a new era in which we will end suffering, we will end crime, hunger, war will be no more. And it's because of science and these wonderful, and we've gotten rid of the myths of religion and, and only good things away us. And then we had World War I, which was the most horrible thing that people in the world had experienced up to that point collectively. And so it really dashed the hopes that the scientific method was going to solve all our problems, because it did. So I, there were a group of philosophers in the 1980s that began to really tackle that head on. And they're not the majority, but I found them interesting. And that was largely what my dissertation was about. Philosophers who would say, there are so many questions that science can't answer, including questions about physics and science. The world is so complex. How can we say that if we cannot prove the existence of God, then therefore there is no God? How can we say that the insights that thousands and millions of people have received and do receive are false because we can't prove them through the scientific method. And I found that interesting to me and really kind of opened my mind up to thinking again that, I mean, there is a place, I think, for me in a faith that says there is a reason for prayer. There is a God who is aware of our prayers and meditations. And there is a overriding ability to love that is largely due to God and, and the divinity in us as well. I'm wondering how your dissertation and your time taking philosophy classes has shaped your relationship with the church, if at all. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, essentially a couple of things. Part of my 40s and 50s involved really the inability to put into words what I thought. 
In part because I wasn't sure what I thought. And in part, you know, I am a lawyer. And I think when you go to certain professional schools, it rewires your brain. And engineers are wired to have an answer, find an answer. Lawyers are wired to see the gray areas and to argue any position. And so I would catch myself, even when I was serious about a religious premise or belief, of almost like crafting an argument for myself. And I would take a step back and go, I don't necessarily believe that. Yes, it sounds credible. And you could make that to a room full of people and say, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But it wasn't necessarily what I believed. And so process of going you know, through the dissertation and thinking challenged me to find more opportunities to confidently articulate a position. And interestingly, I kind of took baby steps. I, took, I taught Sunday school for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders for five years. Had a blast, you know, had some great co-teachers. But I would make myself for class, really look at the simple lessons that we were teaching our children and saying, what do I believe? What can I say in all honesty to these kids that's not just parroting dogma? And even if it wasn't like 100% of what was in the material, forcing myself to find and at least say at some point in the class, here's why we do this. Here's what this means. And so I've agreed to teach a few adult classes and sort of have expanded, you know, what I do in the church in that way. I'd always been involved, I think, kind of as in a lawyerly role, the administration committee and things like that, but had not had as much involvement as a person sort of speaking what I believe to be truth, you know, to a crowd of peers. I'm also wondering, through all of these different faith experiences, how your sense of self is involved, if it's changed at all, if you've learned things about yourself. You know, I, I do think that I have been challenged, maybe push away from some habitual ways of thinking. That could be ways of thinking about who I am, what a soul is, what part of us survives death, part of us, if any, preceded our time on earth. And I don't have answers to that, but, you know, it, it, and maybe it's an age thing too. But, you know, it, it does make me think about that more. It, it does make me think about meaning. Where do we find meaning in what we do? I think in some ways people can get hung up on that, thinking meaning in our life is like a happy ending in a movie. And, and it can be. For some people, it, it, it absolutely is. And for others, it, it's more like when I'm not around either because I'm in the other room or passed from this earth, you know, what would people say? Bill did X. You know, Bill found value in doing X. Bill seemed happiest when he was doing X, you know. I've certainly, in terms of self, began to think more clearly about even meaning with a small M, you know, what is that for me? And to what extent does God have a role in that? Don't know. I mean, it, it was, I, was I born a certain way and this is my trajectory, not necessarily like a wind-up clock, but, you know, being that kind of guy or not, I don't know. But I do think it has introduced more acceptance that this is my life. It's a good life. I can find you know, meaning and enjoyment, a variety of different things, and, and the burden is on me to, to seek them out, test things. It's not necessarily 
this change in my life, but maybe the evolution we've talked about as a whole, has really opened me up more to honest relationships with people. You know, I, I think as a young man, the, the universe of people I was open and honest with were, were pretty limited. You know, one of my sisters, my wife, a couple of good friends, occasionally somebody at work. But I mean, it was, you could count on the fingers of two hands. So maybe some people only have one hand. I had two hands. But I would say I have, partly through my writing experience, as odd as that sounds, gave me more of an ability to feel and express a range of emotions. You know, I remember talking to a counselor once, and she'd say, how does that make you feel? And I said, bad. And she said, well, tell me more. And I couldn't think of any other words. As, as stupid as that sounds, I had such a limited palette for describing emotion. And so, in part, I think writing was an outlet for me, you know, to test that and realize that, you know, it's, it's like a rainbow of emotions that are out there. And so you, you sort of take that next step and say, yes, now I can be more honest about things like that, but who can I tell? And still, I mean, the world doesn't want Bill Swart to come say, how are you doing? Well, I'm glad you asked, you know, and tell them about every you know, emotional thing that's gone in my life that week. But I mean, I do need people and I do have friends and an increasing number of friends who I can share with. And that's a gift. And that's something I could not have said 15 years ago. Some are at church, some are not. But I mean, it's just, it's a way of being more open. And I'm not there yet. I mean, I'm, as I say, God's not done with me yet, but I am a different person than I would have been 15 years ago. Different than I would have been if I hadn't gone through what I've gone through over the last 15 years. So one last thought, I think for me, part of what I have to relearn is the ability to experience awe in life, to acknowledge mystery, with appreciation and worship, but appreciation. I think we in this world have come to believe that so much is explainable and there is so much over the top entertainment available, vacation experiences available, that it is harder to let ourselves simply reflect and say, yeah, that's beautiful, that's awe-inspiring. You know, I'm overwhelmed at that. And so and I think the experiences in life that give us that fresh look at something are precious and, and probably rare, but they're precious. But we need to look for them. We need to, and when they come, you know, be willing to reflect on that. I think, again, taking baby steps, our ability to perceive God, part of that. Because if we can't be in awe about anything, it's harder to even imagine something beyond ourselves. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. And sharing your story. Okay, you're welcome. Mm -hmm.